Alea Yacta Est, a quote often attributed to Julius Caesar, who purportedly said this just before crossing the Rubicon River in northern Italy and heading to battle against his rival, Pompey the Great. It is usually translated into English as, The die is cast. Welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. This is the first introductory episode of the third series of the podcast called The Roman Empire. Now, this series is called The Roman Empire, but it will really be about Rome and its many configurations and manifestations. Ancient Rome was a republic before it was an empire, a kingdom before it was a republic, and a simple settlement on the banks of the Tiber River in Italy before all of that. And actually, I will really begin this study of Rome long before any of that even, before there even was a Rome, in the deep past, in the days of the Indo-European migration. And I'm also not even planning on actually taking this series all the way to the end of the Roman Empire for reasons to be discussed later in the episode. So I chose to call this series the Roman Empire rather than Ancient Rome or some other title, because the imperial era is the one that has had such a formative impact on our Western traditions. Yes, we have inherited much of the culture and ideas and more from ancient Rome and from the Roman Republic and from Roman mythology, but really only because the empire imprinted those ideals and those stories on Western Europe and on its other dominions over the course of centuries. But before I get started with laying out this coming third series of the podcast, let me direct you to the website, western-traditions.org, where you can find all the episodes of this podcast from every series I've done. You can also find helpful pictures, maps, source lists for the episodes, and some good books to read. You can also help to support the podcast by shopping on the merchandise page or contribute directly to the podcast using the PayPal or the Patreon options. When I first envisioned the project that became this whole podcast, I I actually dreaded the idea of doing the Roman series. That may seem surprising, but I have always been drawn to the Greek world, to Greek myth, and to Greek history. I think maybe I found the Greek character or style to be rawer and more vibrant, and I go so far as to always prefer the Greek spelling and styles of names and mythology. I, I say Heracles rather than Hercules, Zeus rather than Jupiter, Hera rather than Juno, etc. Though I knew something anyway of the importance in Rome in our past, I, I feared that the future series on Rome would be just this dry, plodding slog through formal histories about as exciting as a high school history textbook. It was something that I imagined just managing to get through so that I could finally move from the energetic sun of ancient Greece to the flowering of philosophy and literature and religion in the Middle Ages. You see, those were the two eras that I was originally most excited about. Now, this is a little odd, perhaps, because having grown up Roman Catholic, I had been born into the heritage of Rome to some extent. 
Later in the episode, I will get into the idea of who inherited the Roman Empire and discuss the church's role as a successor, but no matter who you think actually inherited Rome's authority and traditions and culture, you have to admit that the Catholic Church at least has a decent claim to that inheritance, and I was raised, so to speak, in that institution after all. So maybe, to some extent, my disdain for Rome was incongruent with my own upbringing and outlook. Regardless, after I began the Greek series a couple years ago, I started to look ahead to Rome, and over time, I became increasingly intrigued by the opportunity to do this series of podcasts. Now, I'm not at all new to the topic of Rome in any of its versions, kingdom, republic, empire, church, etc., I started my journey into the great books decades ago, and before beginning this podcast, I had already read Tacitus, and Suetonius, Virgil, Ovid, many of Plutarch's biographies about Roman legendary and historical figures, and of course, some of these things I had read naturally just as part of getting my English degree in the 1990s. But maybe it was deepening my learning about ancient Greece that started turning wheels in my head when I thought about Rome. I started seeing both connections and distinctions between the two cultures more clearly, and I marveled at the way that each of the two had diverged from their mutual proto-Indo-European roots in terms of language, religion, culture, politics, and so on. Remember how I explained in the first series of the podcast, on the ancient world, in episode 12, how the proto-Indo-Europeans migrated into Europe. Some of them had come down or over into Greece, others had moved farther west, and some of that westward group had then migrated southward into the Italian peninsula. And in that time, they had remained the same in certain ways, these different groups, but they also became different in so many other ways, especially the Greeks and the Latins. Eventually, I found that the Roman story was missing some of the wild tang of Greek flavors. Greek women were wild and provocative, Medea, Hecate, Gorgo, Pasiphae, Leda and that swan, and the maenads terrorizing the countryside. And the Greek men were brilliant and startlingly aggressive and proud, Odysseus always conniving and plotting, Leonidas standing resolutely at the pass of Thermopylae, Pericles dominating Athens, and Alexander standing astride the world for a brief moment after a decade of conquest. But the Romans were fascinating too, their patience and consistency, their stolid bravery, were so enduring that in, instead of being boringly predictable, they were fascinatingly predictable, so adherent to their views, so steady in their intentions. The men were fierce but disciplined, and perplexingly, from a modern feminist-influenced perspective, while the society of the Romans was much more patriarchal than that of the Greeks, Roman women were actually much more free to enjoy public life. I, I think it's best to let uh, Will Durant speak here. In the third book of his Civilization series, Will Durant wrote a beautiful description of the Romans. Here it is. Even today, the timid student is a bit frightened by the intense feelings of these fascinating folk. Their taut muscles, swift love and anger, smoldering or blazing eyes, the pride and fury that made Italy great and tore her to pieces. Nearly all the men are virile and handsome, nearly all the women beautiful, strong, and brave. Now, to some extent, Durant was certainly engaging in hyperbole here, but hyperbole to make a point. After you meet some of the 
personae of Roman drama, you will probably find yourself agreeing with him for the most part. These are an incredible people, an attractive people, and an intimidating people. Maybe all the great people in history or in our own lives are both admirable and a little frightening. In my research, I have also realized that there are so many ways, ways that I had not imagined that the Roman Empire impacted my other favorite era of history, the Middle Ages. Once I had seen such a clear break between the two eras, as if a shroud had been thrown over the corpse of Rome in AD 476 and a new culture had been born, the medieval culture made from whole cloth with no precursor. Instead, more and more, I realized that AD 476 was just a date that the Roman Empire authentically continued for another thousand years after that, at least, and maybe more, depending on how you look at it. For a while, when I was first envisioning this series, in fact, I considered a really radical idea that I would call the third series, this one, the rise of the Roman Empire, and that I would call the fourth series, which is actually going to be about the Middle Ages, I would call that fourth series the decline of the Roman Empire. Because the Middle Ages really do coincide with the slow decline of the Roman Empire as it loses for good its western territories and then the eastern territories are one by one lost to enemies, in particular to Muslim Arabs and later the Turks, until it falls definitively when the Ottoman Sultan Mehmed II captured Constantinople in 1453. In fact, Edward Gibbon's great work, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, often surprises its readers, who come to the book expecting to hear more about, say, Julius Caesar, who was never an emperor and lived before the empire anyway, or they want to hear about Nero and Marcus Aurelius. Instead, these readers find that much of the book is actually about a period that we call the Middle Ages, since Gibbon is, after all, writing about the decline of the empire, and he elaborates on that decline until its fall in 1453. Anyway, I thought, what a great statement those two series would then be about the enduring impact and the influence of the Roman Empire if I actually rename a whole thousand-year period of Western history, that is, the Middle Ages, if I rename it as the decline of the Roman Empire. But even that scheme, I later realized, failed to address the totality of Rome's influence especially when you consider that many other powers to be discussed in the next segment, they had their own claim to Rome's heritage, and their influence continued to last centuries after 1453. They last even until today, really. But also, ultimately, I decided that the scheme also did a disservice to the Middle Ages, which is so much more than a postscript to the fall of the city of Rome. And I also recognized that Rome had continued to influence Western civilization in all its history, not just the subsequent Middle Ages, without interruption, and really it continues to influence us today. After all, it was less than a year ago in 2023 that a saying started getting around on social media, maybe you heard it yourself, that every man thinks about the Roman Empire at least once a day. Given that declaration that we still continue to think about the Roman Empire every day, I want to discuss how Rome continued to exist in some way 
long after AD 476, long after AD 1453, longer than most people think that it ended, that the Roman Empire is not something which lays so far in the past and exists only as a curiosity today, but rather to introduce the idea that the empire is still here with us now, even as our great-grandfathers may be dead in a sense, but they live on in us, in our very blood, in our DNA, and in the blood of our own children. Look at it this way. There are two podcast series that are chronologically prior to this third series. First, I did The Ancient World, 25 episodes about everything from the creation of the world until the rise of the Persian Empire. After that comes the second series, The Greek Sun, which is about history from the primordial beginnings of Greek culture until the decline of Greece after the Hellenistic period, which followed Alexander the Great's conquest of the Persian Empire. Now, it's simultaneously true that all of those previous cultures that I studied, Egyptian, Babylonian, Hittite, Persian, Greek, and so on, all continue, yes, to have some sort of influence on our modern day, to have left some sort of traces in our modern global culture, and certainly most would agree that Rome also influences us today like them. But in the case of Rome, and specifically the Roman Empire, I think we reach the first ancient culture and nation which not only continues to influence us today, but also continues to exist, in a sense. What do I mean by this? After all, didn't the Roman Empire finally fall in AD 1453 when the Ottoman Turks captured Constantinople and executed the last Roman emperor? Didn't the Roman Empire finally fade into history at that juncture, just as the Greek and Persian empires had done thousands of years ago? Or does the Roman Empire still exist today? And I mean really exist, not just as a cultural influence, not as a meme on social media, but as a real political body or structure in some way. And if there is still a Roman Empire, there must be an emperor, right? What is an empire, after all, without its emperor? There are a number of ways in which we can say that the Roman Empire is either still with us or at least existed until very recently, and that Roman Empire emperors still live amongst us. For instance, when the Ottoman Turks conquered Constantinople, the capital of the Roman Empire, in AD 1453, and they killed the Roman Emperor, this did not necessarily mean that the empire had come to an end. After all, think about it. Many emperors of Rome over the previous 1,500 years had come to power by doing something just like that, by defeating an army and by killing off the previous emperor and his closest family. Now, some people, obviously some Turks, prefer to see the Roman, the Ottoman emperors as simply the next dynasty of emperors in Rome. In other words, from this point of view, Mehmed II, the sultan of the Ottoman Turks, became the Roman emperor after he conquered the city. Many Turks did, and do, in fact, believe this. You could potentially say, depending on your perspective, that it is really Christian bias which says that the empire ended with the change of rulers, that Christians think it ended because they did not want to accept the possibility of a non-Christian emperor. According to this perception, then, Christians are just taking their toys and going home instead of accepting that the power of Rome passed into infidel hands. After all, What if the rest of the world had decided that the Roman Empire came to an end in the early 4th century AD when Constantine defeated his pagan enemies and became the first Christian emperor? All the emperors before him had been pagans of some sort, so unless you're willing to accept that the Roman Empire ended back then, back when the the emperors changed religion from pagan to Christian, 
You should have to accept also then that Mehmed II simply became the first Muslim emperor of Rome when he conquered Constantinople and killed the last Christian emperor. If you subscribe to this point of view, then the Roman Empire continued to exist in the form of the Ottoman Empire, which, in fact, ruled over many of the same lands that Rome had ruled, and it continued to exist then, this renamed Roman Empire, until 1923, just a century ago, when the Ottoman Empire was dissolved and the Republic of Turkey was born, as were many of the Muslim-majority nations in the Middle East. It is shocking when you first consider it that somehow the Roman Empire, or its successor anyway, was around when your grandfather or great-grandfather was alive. And if you are really stubborn in this line of thought, you could say that the Roman Empire, in the form of the Ottoman Empire, is really just on a long break because there are still living heirs of that last sultan slash emperor, Harun Osman, a 92-year-old man living in Istanbul today in 2024, Harun Osman is the head of the House of Osman, from which all the Ottoman sultans for five centuries were born. Harun, well, he, expo- he espouses loyalty to the democratic government of Turkey, has many grandchildren. So, from this point of view, the emperors of Rome are still alive and amongst us, only suppressed for a moment. Now, If you are Christian and this way of thinking disturbs you, rejoice. You can look at things from a different angle, a Christian angle, and see how there are at least two ways to think that a still Christian Roman emperor lives among us, and how even the Christian Roman Empire still exists in some way. For one, know that in AD 800, Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne as emperor, and that Charlemagne styled himself with language that approximated, without ever quite making the open declaration, but he certainly seemed to suggest that he was the new emperor of Rome, and thus becoming the first emperor of the West in more than 300 years. While this claim can be contested, there is no doubt that at least some of Charlemagne's descendants and successors styled themselves as the new Roman emperors in the West and brother emperors to the emperors in the East, who generally did not share this belief. Well, you might ask, so what? That was long ago. But actually, the Holy Roman Empire, as it came to be called, lasted officially until 1806, when Napoleon forced its dissolution, and that was only two centuries ago. And really, the Holy Roman Empire actually continued on after that. It didn't dissolve because the same emperors continued to rule, and they just started to call their domain the Austro-Hungarian Empire, having only surrendered the right to the title of Holy Roman Emperor, not the power. And that Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was really just the Holy Roman Empire under a new name, continued on, until the end of World War I. And even after the fall of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Roman Catholics and the older Latin Mass, Catholics continued to pray in their liturgy, in their public worship, in the Mass, for the well-being of the Emperor, right up until 1955. That's just 70 years ago. They were praying for the Emperor just 17 years before I was born. And the heir to that imperial throne, the heir to thousands of years of history, lives on today. Otto von Habsburg, born in 1912, was the last actual crown prince of that empire, and he didn't die until 2011. 
When Barack Obama was president, the crown prince of the legacy of the Holy Roman Empire was still alive and amongst us. And crown prince Otto's son, Karl von Habsburg, is still alive and well, living in Austria, the blood of the centuries of emperors still running in his veins. Maybe, like the Ottoman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire is just on a long break. Now, I mentioned Roman Catholics a moment ago praying for the emperor. Well, according to another school of thought, the Roman Empire does in fact continue to exist in the form of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, and the head of the Catholic Church, the holder of the office of Pope, according to this thinking, is the true modern Roman Emperor, having received Rome into his care during late antiquity, or the early Middle Ages, when the barbarian invasions left the land without a political head and the popes assumed the role of leadership, becoming the de facto emperors, even if they weren't emperors de jure. Furthermore, there is even a preserved document, considered a likely forgery, in which Constantine the Great, after he moved the Roman capital to Constantinople in AD 325, in which he gave the Western Empire over to the care of the Pope in Rome. This questionable document is called the Donation of Constantine. Nevertheless, even if this document is a forgery, once we get to the next series, the fourth series on the Middle Ages, the substance of this claim, anyway, will become apparent when we look at the way that the Church carried on the traditions of Rome and functioned, at times, in the place of the Western Empire and as a representative of the West. So, considering these points of view... The empire, the Roman Empire, is still around, in religious form at least, and even, in some respects, in its legal, political, and even personal manifestations. This is something that will become more understandable when I get into that fourth series about the Middle Ages, but I hope that I have made clear in all this that the series about the Roman Empire is not simply an investigation of an ancient curiosity. When we study archaeological sites, such as Gobekli Tepe and the various sites, some of them even more ancient, that have been discovered since then. And these sites are from more than 10,000 years ago. When we study these sites, there's much that's fascinating to learn about the development of human society, but there's still quite a disconnect. Those people living in that time and region probably had totally different views about life, about religion, about morality, about economics, and so on. But as we get closer to our time, we begin to see that things are more and more familiar the ancient Greeks seem very distinct in some ways, for instance, but let's say their politics, in ways that are both good and bad, they are all too familiar. I think that the Roman series will be something that strikes even more familiar chords when you listen to it. The Roman Empire has survived into our present age not just as a social media meme, not just by living rent-free in the heads of many men who recall it and converse about it, but the empire remains physically in our presence in many other ways in the blood of men whose ancestors ruled that empire, in the institutions of a world religion of over a billion faithful, in our laws, and in many of our customs. The Roman Empire also continues to exist, indisputably, in our language. Consider, if you will, the Latin language. Latin, the language of the Romans, Latin is everywhere. 
Our law books are full of Latin, and Latin is the foundation for many of the most popular Indo-European languages today, including Spanish and French and Italian, of course, but also even English. Thanks in a great part to Shakespeare, to the translators of the Dewey Reams Catholic Bible, to the earliest scientists, and to lawyers and philosophers of the early modern period, the English language has received a strong infusion of Latin. If you're in my age group, at least, you probably remember endless grade school work about learning Latin roots. And if you are working in medicine or the legal profession, you are surrounded by the Latin language every day. And then consider that the Roman Catholic Church, with all of its canons, its laws, its precepts, and even all the modern papal documents, they're all written in Latin to be translated to the world in its various languages, but with the official documents, the ones that are stored in the Vatican and referred to, these are all originally in Latin. The thinking of the church is in Latin, and the church is is actually beginning to revive its use of Latin in its worship and in its studies after it fell into disuse for some five or six decades. So the language of the Romans continues today not only as a relic of the past, but as something which is still impacting our way of life. But, and and here's the most important part, Latin is essentially ensured and and an eternal existence and influence, not just on the Western world, but on the future of humanity, whatever that may be. Remember how I mentioned English receiving such a strong infusion of Latin in the early modern era? And, and I don't mean Latin phrases that we use off and on, such as ad hoc, per diem, or vice versa. There are many words that have become integral, natural-sounding parts of English, such as words like media, focus, index, mundane, virtue, etc. Yeah, etc. is Latin. Gotcha. And yes, you might say, sure, Latin influenced English, and obviously many major world languages have even stronger roots in Latin. Romance languages like Spanish and Romanian and French. But there are lots of languages in the world, you might say, so why should I expect Latin to go on to have such influence in the future? Maybe these languages will fade from popularity and wide usage, and the Latin language will fade into obscurity just as well, just just as Sumerian languages has done, just as whatever language that they spoke at Gobekli Tepe has faded away. But let me bring in another word now that is crucial to my thesis here. That word is data. It comes into the English language from Latin. By now, you may already understand that information is both the newest currency and the product of global commerce. I go on about this in several episodes in my ninth series of the podcast, the the episodes about things like the technological singularity and other technological matters. There is really a whole new underlying topic here for a whole other podcast series about how many modern companies are making much of their income from dealing in information, especially with regard to targeting advertisements. But leaving that possibility aside for a moment, consider how computer technology, information technology, has taken over the global economy. We may seem to be getting away from Latin, but just bear with me for a moment. In the stock market, there are essentially 10 or 11 different sectors of investment, such as the industrial sector, the material sector, and the financial sector. The newest sector among these investment options is the information technology sector. In that sector, you will find names such as Microsoft, Apple, and NVIDIA, and many others. If you pay any attention to the investment world, then you know that these are the names of the largest, most powerful businesses in the world. And they deal in data, really, when you think about it. Storing your data, transferring your data to make purchases, and so on. 
Anyway, what does this have to do with Latin? Well, it really has to do with English, which, as I've said, contains a core of Latin vocabulary and which shares in the Indo-European roots of Latin anyway. Since English is the language in which most of the early computer programming was done, even if speakers of many different languages now use and develop computers, there is probably always going to be an eternal English core to computer science, and, and therefore really an eternal Latin core as well. Here's Wikipedia on the matter of English in computing. Quote, The English language is sometimes described as the lingua franca of computing, in comparison to other sciences where Latin and Greek are often the principal sources of vocabulary, computer science borrows more extensively from English. And if you check out my ninth series and the episodes on technology and on the technolo technological singularity and the possible looming end of the human race, then you will understand how computer science, which was devised mostly from an English language point of view, how computer science may be the last science that we ever use. So the last word to describe the robot apocalypse and the end of the human race very well could be a Latin word. Finis. This third series of episodes for the Western Traditions podcast will be broken down into three units. The first unit will be about the origin of the Roman people, starting all the way back at the expansion of the Anatolian farmers into Europe, followed by the Indo-European migrations into the area and the rise of the Etruscans. We will explore the archaeological and genetic evidence for the Romans and look at people living in the same area before they even called themselves Roman. Roman mythology and the rise of the Roman kings will also be explored. This first unit will end with the fall of the last king of Rome in 509 BC. The second unit will be about the Roman Republic from 509 to 27 BC, a period during which some of the greatest names of Roman history will appear, such as Scipio Africanus, Marcus Cato, Sulla, Marius, Cicero, Julius Caesar, and more. Finally, the third unit of episodes will cover the early centuries of the Roman Empire. The very next episode in this series, then, will be the introduction to the Roman Origins Unit. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.